If you have your Bibles with you, I would invite you to turn to the book of 2 Samuel. We'll be looking this morning at the second half of chapter 6. Uh, one of the advantages of preaching consecutively through books of the Bible is that you always have context for your sermon. Uh, the congregation always knows where you are and where you've been because you're journeying together through a book. Uh, one of the challenges of preaching this way is there are times when you can have a very challenging passage one week followed by an equally challenging passage the next week. And if I had thought I would have had the capability of preaching all of chapter 6 in one sermon, I would have done so. You can tell I did not think that that was possible because these two halves of chapter 6 are related. They give us a balanced view of who God is. And it's not, I think, a coincidence that 2 Samuel puts these two pictures of our God side by side. We will begin by looking at chapter 6 at verse 12 and read through to the end of the chapter. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. 2 Samuel 6, beginning at verse 12. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. But Michal, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. 
But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michal, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would attend your word. That by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would illuminate our eyes and our minds. That as we look to your word, we would know more and more of who you are. Of the great things that you have done. And of how you indeed are our Redeemer. Let us rejoice in you, O Lord. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. Last week, as we looked at the beginning section of 2 Samuel 6, we looked at a severe passage. We saw that God is holy and that we cannot be casual with Him. This week, we see the Bible's balance. We see that it is right and good to rejoice in God because of who He is. It can be hard for us to maintain this balance. It seems easier often to view God from only one perspective. We tend to be either stiff and fearful or joyful and reckless. But this chapter teaches us that we are to tremble and rejoice. That we are to fear and be glad. And so this morning... I would like us to see three characteristics of the believer from our text. First, obedience. That the Christian is to be obedient to the Lord his God. Second, joyful. That the Christian is to rejoice in the Lord his God. And then third, submission. That the believer is to submit to the Lord his God and not... To the world around him. Obedience, joyfulness, and submission. Let's begin then by looking at obedience. And specifically, I want us to see how God's blessings spur us on to obedience. Now, something in our text has changed after three months. From verse 11 to verse 12, three months have passed. When David left in the beginning of, verse, of chapter 6, he was afraid. He was satisfied to leave the ark behind. He knew that he had been too casual with God and that he had not followed God's commands and that as a result, God had broken out against Uzzah and struck him dead. Having been shocked by God's response here, David wondered out loud whether he could ever be in the presence of God. That's what we see in chapter 6, verse 9. David openly asks the question, Shall I ever have the ark come to me? But now, there is a change. God has made clear the blessing of His presence. We see this in a simple statement in verse 12. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. 
Now, we don't know exactly what this blessing was. It could have been that God brought prosperity to the home of Obed-Edom. He could have lifted them out of poverty and into wealth. It could have been a great increase in the yield of their crops and in their agricultural work. But in either event, it was no secret. It was clear for people to see that God had blessed Obed-Edom and his house. Now, what can we know about God's blessing from this? I think three things. First, we can know that God's blessings are real. Just because we don't know the exact nature of this blessing, it doesn't make it unreal. Clearly, others noticed what God had done for Obed-Edom. This was much more than a feeling that Obed-Edom had. It was not just that he was encouraged or that he thought things were getting better all the time. No, there was a change for the good that he experienced. But at the same time, we must keep in mind that real blessings can be spiritual blessings. We should not expect God to always bless us with wealth or with health. That's not how God works often. Sometimes God's blessings transform our spirit and our character. We may, for example, continue to struggle financially, but yet know greater measures of joy and peace. We could increase in our love for others as a result of the blessing of God. We could see God make us more and more people of integrity. These are real blessings that God gives to his people. The second thing we notice about God's blessings is that they are published. They are spread abroad. Now notice what God does here is not hidden. In verse 12, it was told King David. There was such an amazement about what God had done that others simply had to tell David what was going on. This is the powerful work of the gospel. God often does his own evangelism. It's just another way that we know that God doesn't need us. God doesn't need you to spread his gospel. He is at work in the lives of his people. And often the gospel is spread simply by others seeing God bless us and asking about our God. How is it that this has happened? How has this come to you? What is different, people will ask, in many different ways. Thirdly, God not only spreads abroad the news of his blessing, he makes the reason for his blessing known. God's blessings here clearly coincided with the presence of the ark. The reports that came to David said exactly that. They didn't just say, the house of Obed-Edom has been blessed and we don't know why, king. No, they said, we do know why. It was because of the ark. Because God was there. God has blessed them. Now, this would, of course, dispel the thought that to be in the presence of God was only a dangerous thing. And this is something that we need to hear especially in light of the first half of chapter 6. It is indeed 
a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a dangerous thing to treat God casually, to not understand His holiness. But that doesn't mean that we should keep God at a distance. That somehow we're better off if God is far away from us. That we are safer without Him. No. That's what the blessings upon Obed-Edom tell us. God is holy, but He's also good. When you think about blessings in your life, do you give credit to God? Do you see Him at work in your life and tell others about that? Often, the greatest evangelism that we can do is a humble acknowledgement that we are dependent upon God and that He takes care of us. Just as David was affected by seeing God's blessings, so our neighbors, our co-workers, and our friends can be affected by seeing God's blessings come to us. Now, notice David's reaction to learning of these blessings in the second half of verse 12. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. David sees the blessing of God and it spurs him on to obey God. Usually our problem is that we think about this in reverse. We believe we have to obey God so that he will bless us. As if God is somehow bound by our actions. We can do our part and then God's obligated to do his part. But here, the blessing comes first. There's nothing in the text that shows that Obed-Edom has done anything to earn this blessing. He is just the guy who happens to have the place where the ark stayed. There is no negotiating with God about blessings. There's no saying to God, God, I'll do this if you'll only do that for me. And if we're honest, can't that often be how we pray? Lord, I need deliverance from this situation. I promise to do this, or I promise to do that, if you will only deliver me. If you'll only do this, I'll follow up, God. I'll pay you back, as if somehow we could pay God back. That is not the way of grace. God gives us his blessings, not because we earn them, but because he is gracious. And our response to God's grace is gratitude. We obey God not to earn a blessing, but in thankfulness for the blessing received. That sums up our relationship with Jesus Christ. That Jesus, in His grace, brings us redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, propitiation. And we, having received it, respond in gratitude and obedience. David has now learned from his previous error. He had thought all that was needed was joy in the Lord. You will remember that before they all rejoiced, but they weren't really very concerned about obeying. David didn't think about whether the ark needed to be covered or not. It was enough to be joyful. 
He didn't think about how the ark was to be carried or what God had said. It was just enough to rejoice in the moment. But when Uzzah was struck dead, David did not know what to do. But somehow, he must have seen his error. Either David or someone close to him went back to God's word and studied and saw that God had given commandment about how the ark was to be transported and that what had happened to Uzzah was a direct result of ignoring God's commands. And so now David is very careful to give God his due. We see David's commitment to obedience in a brief statement in verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Now, this seems odd. Why would David do this? Doesn't it seem almost like too much? You've only gone six steps, and now you're going to have a sacrifice? This is, again, one of these instances where the commentators go to flights of fancy. Some commentators say, you see, what they, what they mean here is, every six steps of the journey, David sacrificed. Now, the journey is nine miles long. I don't know about you, but that's an awful lot of oxen and cattle. I don't think that's what's meant here. This is a summary statement of David's commitment to obeying God. He won't even begin the journey except that he will follow God's word. And so what we see here is a brief summary that they bore the ark of the Lord. That takes us back to the understanding of how the ark is to be moved. And in the parallel account to this passage, in 1 Chronicles 15, we see much more depth of what David has done. We see that he gathered the Levites, and not just any old Levites, right? He gathered the Kohathites, who were the distinct group of Levites who were charged with the ark and its contents and transporting it. And he gathered up the poles that were used to transport the ark. And everything that he did was according to God's word in Numbers 4. David was very carefully laying out and working according to God's explicit command. We don't see all of that detail here, but know that he did. David obeyed God in this time and sought him in his word. It is never wrong to obey God and his word. So often the voices in our culture say the opposite. They say that God's word is outdated, that it's small-minded, that it's unimportant. But we need to be committed to it. Children, you are never too young to learn and obey the word of God. Learn it. Follow it. Live your life for it. That is the place of blessing and honor. Now, we also notice a second thing in our text. We notice that we are meant to rejoice in the Lord. Now, it is possible to conclude that the earlier problem in chapter 6 
was too much joy and not enough obedience. As if somehow it was a recipe. You know, there are certain recipes, don't put sugar in the recipe, just put salt in. Because if you do, you'll ruin the dish. And the truth is that here, over and over again, we see joy and celebration. David is taking every effort to obey God's commands with all of his might. But that doesn't lessen his joy. Look at how David and the people bring the ark now. David initiates this rejoicing in verse 12. They bring it with rejoicing. And he is public about it. Unrestrained, we might say. David danced before the Lord with all his might. It was obvious for others to see. This was not like if you've ever been to a celebration such as a wedding or an anniversary where there is music and dancing and you might notice someone on the edge of the dance floor and they realize they're supposed to be joyous but they really don't have it in them to do it so they might stand on the edge of the dance floor and move themselves slightly so that they're technically dancing but no one would would call it dancing no one would say it was joyful that's not david here no one's mistaking david's joy he is leaping and cavorting. He is dancing before all of the people. He is rejoicing in the Lord his God. There is absolutely no mistake. And it is infectious. Look at verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the, song, with the sound of the horn. You could just imagine all of the people shouting to each other perhaps singing out loud antiphonally with one half singing a line and the other half repeating or responding. And the sound of those great ram's horns blowing out. The procession would be heard for miles. They would be rejoicing. The obedience of David and the people of God has not dampened their joy at all. Now, there is an analogy here to our worship. Now, I want to be clear. What we see in 2 Samuel 6 is not the formal public worship of God. It is an unusual celebration as the ark is brought into the city. And so, we should not use this as a proof text. Do not expect next week when I am on vacation, ram's horns to be blown in the sanctuary. Do not expect a ballet performance. But there are principles here that apply. God has spoken in his word about how the ark was to be transported. He was to be obeyed. In a similar way, God has spoken to us about how he is to be worshipped. Do you ever wonder why we worship the way that we do? Do you think it's just traditional worship, and that that's our preference? Do you think that because our pastors like to preach, that's why preaching is a main component of our worship? No. We follow what is called the regulative principle of worship, that God is only to be worshipped as He has commanded. God knows what He desires, 
better than we do. And worship is God-directed, not us-directed. The Confession of Faith puts it this way, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men. So what does this look like? God commands us to pray. So we have prayer in our worship. Have you ever wondered why we have several elements of prayer in our worship? It's because God has commanded that. God commands us to read the scriptures. And so we do that. It is not a coincidence that we have a consecutive reading of scripture that is separate and apart from the word preached. God commands us to sing praise to him. And so song is a part of our worship. He tells us to preach the word. He tells us to celebrate the sacraments. And so all of these are elements of our worship. And that is what worship looked like for centuries in all Protestant churches after the Reformation. After the Reformation stripped away all of the innovations of the Roman Catholic Church, a simple, God-directed worship. But to worship this way is not to do away with joy. Just because we want to obey God and worship Him only as He is commanded does not mean we should do that in a scowling fashion, with a sour puss on our face, as if we have to do it, so we will. No, it's not as if David here said, we better be careful after what happened last time. We better all make sure we're really solemn and really serious. No, if anything, they were more joyful as they brought the ark in. And so this is with us. Just because we seek to obey God does not mean we should not be joyful. You should strive to sing with all joy. You should be moved emotionally by the reading and preaching of Scripture. You should pour out your heart to God in prayer. We are made to rejoice in the Lord. And this joy is a corporate joy. We are not only meant to rejoice in the Lord, we are meant to rejoice together. David is the obvious focus of the scene here. We see him dancing and leaping. We'll talk in just a moment about Michal's reaction to this. But don't miss the people of God all coming together for this. In verse 15, we have all the house of Israel shouting and blowing ram's horns. And David was intentional in involving them. He could have told them to stay away. He could have said it'd be safer if you weren't here. We can avoid another disaster, and it'll be less embarrassing to me if fewer people are here if there's a problem. But instead, he gathers them. He makes them a part of this joyous scene. Look at verse 18. David blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. David tells the people that the blessings of God belong to them. That God is present with them, not just him. This 
is why the public gathering of God's people is so important and must never be abandoned. We are meant to rejoice in the Lord together. We worship God as a family. There may be times when that's not possible, but that is the exception, not the rule. Do not absent yourself from worshiping God together with His people. You were meant to rejoice in the Lord corporately. Well, there is a third thing that we see in our text. We've seen that the believer is to practice obedience and to practice joy. He's also to practice submission. And we see this Because not everyone was glad to rejoice with David. There is a sadness here in seeing someone submit not to the Lord, but to the world. We see a picture of Michal looking out over the scene in verse 16. Now, you will notice she is not a part of this celebration. But it is not because she is a woman. It's not as if only the men were able to celebrate and the women were pulled away. No, we know that there were women involved. David served the women food and he he blessed them. And Michal noticed that there were women around David in the celebration. No, she was absent because she had chosen to make herself absent from this celebration. She did not want to be joyous in the Lord. And that's because she thought the whole event was undignified. If she had had her way, David wouldn't have been involved either. Or at least he would have played the part of a king. He would have stood aloof from all of this. He would have been separate. He wouldn't have been so emotional. Wouldn't have shown any joy. And the description we have here of Michal, that she despised David in her heart points us to anger, frustration, a complete lack of joy. While David is dancing, Michal is despising. Picture the scene here. After the celebration, David comes home to his house. He's tired. He's sweaty. He's smiling and he is joyful. His voice is hoarse from shouting and singing. And Michal comes up to him, the exact opposite. Not a hair is out of place. Her gown is perfectly smooth. There is no smile on her face, but rather a scowl. And then sarcastically she says to David, Well, what a sight you are, jumping and twisting with the crowd, dressed like a common man. Some king you are. You should be ashamed of yourself, as if you were playing to the slave girls. How tasteless, how rude. What was in her mind now? Why does she have this reaction? I think we get a clue from how she is described over and over again. Do you see it in verse 16? Then again in verse 20? Then again in verse 23? She is not David's wife. She is Michal, 
the daughter of Saul. It's almost as if she was saying to David, my father knew how to look like a king. My father was every bit a king. He wasn't foolish like you are. And on some level, she's right. Saul was tall and handsome. He would have stayed apart from this joyous celebration. He would have kept himself aloof and apart from his people. He would have kept his distance. Because that's what kings in the world do. It's what the culture expects. And Mikal grew up in a worldly-minded environment. She was more concerned about what the Jerusalem fashion page said than what God thought. She mentions the servant girls, but she's not jealous of David. No, she's looking down on what she feels are an inferior class of people. This is the way of the world. It wants to steal your joy in the Lord. It wants you to be embarrassed for praying before a meal. It wants you to be ashamed of singing with gusto. It wants you to be reluctant to read and memorize Scripture. Don't fall for that. God is not ashamed to be called your God, Hebrews 11 tells us. Do not be ashamed to rejoice in Him. Now this may be the greatest challenge for students going off to school. It is difficult to keep up godly habits. Because when you try to keep up godly habits, others will tell you, you're not being independent enough. You're acting like a kid. You're only doing things because you think your parents will find out and you'll get in trouble. Don't fall for that lie. Don't submit to the world's standard. We are to submit to God, to His truth, to His word, and yes, to His joy. There is a joy in submitting to the Lord. David would not submit to his wife's worldview. Instead, he was fully committed to submitting to the Lord. It doesn't take him long to reply. He's not embarrassed. He doesn't feel the need to apologize. David makes clear that he's not only willing, but joyful to submit to the Lord. He wasn't celebrating before Michal or before the servant girls. No, he was celebrating before the Lord, we read in verse 21. To David, there is nothing undignified about submitting to the Lord. To David, he's not the king of Israel. He's the servant of God. This is a whole different way of looking at the world. David doesn't want the world's idea of dignity. He wants to know joy in the world. This is a choice that all of us have to make, young and old. We think that the challenge of the world comes in complex worldviews or in apologetical arguments. But much more often it comes as a direct challenge to your heart. Are you excited about the things of God and the Lord Jesus Christ? 
Do you rejoice in what Jesus has done for you? Are you more excited to tell people how great Jesus is than about how your sports team is the best? Can it ever be right to be cold to Christ and enthusiastic for the world? If you know Jesus by faith, then you cannot help but rejoice in him. You have been set free from sin and death. You have been made a part of a new family and brought into the presence of a great and loving God. How can you keep that inside? Come, let us praise the Lord together and rejoice in him. Let's pray.